All right, then let's go back to Hosea. <clears throat> I might get through the rest of it today, but that's not a promise, that's a thought. We came down to chapter 11, and we'll start there. He's just talked the end of chapter 10 about, in a morning shall a king of Israel utterly be cut off. So again, mentioning sudden destruction of Israel and particularly Ephraim here at the end time, uh, as well as the church being cut off, speaking of the firstborn of God, the first church of the firstborn. That's not a name of the church, it's the church of God, but uh, we are the church of the firstborn in that sense. All right, so let's get into chapter 11. When Israel was a child, then I loved him. When we were small, originally, and when the church was small, originally, God said he loved us. We were childlike. We were like a child. We were eager to learn. We were not taking the bit in our teeth and all going our own different directions as we are now. And just as Israel started out small and humble through Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, who became Israel, and Joseph, they were small in their own eyes, and they looked to God, and then something happened. It came to the point where the kings of Israel would not follow God at all. And we had a period of time when the kings were not reigning, but it was the time of the judges, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that is not a situation that God likes. It is a confused situation where everyone is doing what he wants to do and decides for himself. We need leadership, and then sometimes when we do get leadership, we're stubborn and stiff-necked and don't even want to follow that. We've become big in our own minds. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. They had been humbled there. They had grown into a nation there. And as slaves, there wasn't a lot of pride and vanity to be had. What was there to be proud of? Making bricks for Egyptians. So they were childlike, and they were willing to listen when Moses came and said, you're going to be delivered. God is going to use me to bring you out. And... They listened. They hearkened. When it came time for it to happen, the Passover occurred. They stayed in their houses out of fear and put the blood on the doorposts, and they were delivered. And they'd been told that when first light comes, when the danger is gone, we got to get out of here. And they picked up everything they had, and they left because they were, at that point, ready and willing to listen, to take instruction, to take guidance, to follow the leadership of the ones that God had sent there to lead them out, Moses and Aaron. So when he called them out, they went. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to Balaam and burned incense to graven images. So they were called of God, and then they were called of the world. And they went right back to their pagan practices almost immediately. They didn't even get across the Red Sea before they began to doubt and murmur. 
And as soon as they crossed the Red Sea and there wasn't a pool of water waiting, they started to murmur some more, complain and gripe, and put down the leadership. So I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms. He says, I led them, I guided them, I took them by the arms, but they knew not that I healed them. They were not aware of God's presence and what he was doing. They could only see themselves and the around and what they were being tempted with. They did not have a clear vision that God was in control, that God was leading them, and that he would make sure that everything was taken care of. Bottom line, they had no faith in God. They looked at themselves, they looked at the physical, and they could see no answers, so they disbelieved, complained, murmured, griped. And in that day, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They knew not that I healed them. They didn't know that my purpose, my goal, was to take them out of slavery, to take them into a promised land, and to bless them as no other people had ever been blessed. They just couldn't get it, brethren. They couldn't trust God Almighty himself. They knew not that I healed them, that I knew what I was doing. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. The Proverbs talk about how fascinating it is to watch a man with a maid and how he can draw her emotionally to himself and then the right time she'll say, Oh, yes, yes, I'll marry you, I will. I drew them with the cords of a man with bands of love. I allured them, I seduced them into doing what I wanted them to do. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws. I took the lead off their jaw like you had a hook in someone's jaw and were pulling them along. I took that out and I tried to draw them with love. I tried to draw them with promise, with a vision of what I was doing. I laid meat to them. He sent them quail when they griped about the manna. He did all he could to try to convince them that he was God, he knew what he was doing, and he would lead them where they needed to go but they didn't have the faith to believe it. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to return. This is an end time prophecy. This time we're not going to be taken into Egypt. They were in Egypt, were born there, grew there as slaves, were taken out of there, here, and over to the new Egypt in ships. And it took a long time with many generations of desolation in the original promised land before God allowed them to return here. He said, this time you're not going to Egypt again in ships. This time you're going to Assyria. The Assyrian will be the king in charge of the new world order and where the slaves go, not the Egyptians. 
And the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels, their own direction. They're deciding themselves. They're not trusting God and then the leadership that God has sent. Now, let's draw this down. We are a nation that will not follow God, and the church has gotten to the point it, it also will not follow God. It will simply not open up the scriptures and read them and take them for what they say and do what God wants done. But let's not blame everybody else, brethren. I've said that many times in many different ways. Let's take personal responsibility. And since this book, Hosea, is written to Ephraim the nation and to Ephraim the church, are we not part of the church? Yes, we are. So let's take this personally today, shall we? Let's see, let's draw this down to you and me, to this little congregation. Let's don't blame any other peoples anywhere. Let's own it. We're part of the church of the firstborn, and therefore if God writes to us, he must mean us, not somebody else. Okay? Is that fair? We go there? I see some nods, yes. A few probably are afraid to rot nod no. <laughs> we have seen in Isaiah 45, maybe I'll turn back there and just review briefly so you won't think I'm misquoting. Isaiah 44 and 45 tell a story. It's about, it begins really in chapter 40 with a voice crying in the wilderness and how all flesh withers as grass and says, what shall I say to this people? And talks about, behold your God and so on and how he will plant the trees in the wilderness. And then he goes on to show that those that he plants will be his witnesses, not two, but the whole group will be his witnesses. That's kind of the story from Isaiah 40 over to 44. And he says, well, let's go to 44, verse 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions, and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. He can only be talking to his church, because those are the only ones who are redeemed at this point. Certainly, the nation has not been redeemed of God. And he says in many places in the, in the prophecies that he will remove our sins. <laughs> he will forgive them and remove them in one day, and so on and so forth. So there is a time that God is going to remove our sins from before his face so he can stand to look at us, turn his face back on us, and begin to truly bless us in millennial ways in this age as a witness to the world. We, as we live, under godly conditions, will be God's witnesses that he is God. He has to do that somewhere in the end time with some group of people because that's what is written here. The only question is whether you and I will be a part of it. It's something God is going to do. So in that context, he begins to talk in verse 25 uh, well, he, he, let's read verse 24 down. Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb, 
I am the eternal that makes all things. He confirms he is the creator God that stretched forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. I do all these things, he says, that frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad. They think they have it all figured out and he drives them crazy. That turn wise men backward and make their knowledge foolish. People who think they know the answers. He is going to make them foolish. Now that is the context in which he introduces something for us to digest. The conventional wisdom, the conventional understanding, those who think they know the answers are going to be made like madmen. What God is going to do, he says, is going to be so strange, so different, so unanticipated that it will drive them crazy. Now what does he say he is going to do? In this context, in this time frame, when his witnesses are coming forth to the world. Verse 26, he continues his thought about himself that confirms the word of his servant. So he's going to send a servant. Isaiah might be that servant to give a message. Now it's our job not to give our message. It's simply our job to deliver the message that God gave Isaiah. So let's not anyone take credit for something God gave through one of his holy prophets. He wrote it down. Not that Isaiah could remember it, but so that we could read it and understand. It confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. Now what God is saying here, he sent a messenger, Isaiah, to tell us about 2,500 years ago of things he would do today. Now is that not incredible in itself? Nostradamus doesn't have a clue, or didn't, compared to God Almighty. People look to all these prophets of men. They can't make anything happen. God can. And the only way Nostradamus could see anything that might be in the future was because he was tuned into Satan, who knows the story in the Bible. So he could get some stuff right. But it's pure demonism, listening to the spirits that whisper and mutter. This word is what we go by, because God lays it out clearly, whereas Nostradamus was quite murky, because the demons are murky. Okay? He performs the counsel of his messengers. Whatever he wrote 25, 2600 years ago in this book, he can bring to pass, and is, and will. But says to Jerusalem... You shall be inhabited. Now, why does he say you shall be inhabited? Because the true Jerusalem is not inhabited. It has been a desolation of many generations, as Isaiah 61, Jeremiah 9, and other places point out. 
Men do not live there. Jackals and dragons, lizards and coyotes live there. Not men. He says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, inferring that it is not inhabited. Well, that Jerusalem in the Middle East is inhabited, isn't it? The time the two witnesses are about to come on the scene and the church of the firstborn is here. Been inhabited thousands and thousands of years over there. Hasn't been uninhabited since it was established by men. You shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That which has gone into desolation and ruin is going to be raised up. Now, spiritually speaking, this could be referring to the church, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, as we know, but it is also referring to the physical. Both stories run together through here. But says to the deep, be dry and I will drive up your rivers, dry up your rivers. God is saying, I have the capacity to create, to uncreate, if you will. I can dry up the rivers. But says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So there is a Cyrus that will appear at the end, just as the original Cyrus was in Ezra and Nehemiah, and he will say to the temple, your foundation shall be laid into Jerusalem, you shall be built. That's a prophecy in your Bible. Then he addresses him directly in chapter 45, Thus says the Eternal to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the hinged gates, and the gates shall not be shut. God is going to open some gates to a man, and he will not be a converted man, and we'll see that here in a moment, and they'll not be shut. They'll be open to it. Now the original Cyrus, if you read Ezra, allowed Israel to go and build Jerusalem back, went with Nehemiah to build the walls, the walls and the gates back of Jerusalem, and he gave the temple treasures that had been carried off to Babylon to do it with, and it was accomplished. But that's a matter of history. Now we're reading Isaiah, which is not history, but was written after that was done. So it has to be prophecy for the future. Thus says the eternal is anointed to one that he has set aside as a servant. His right hand I have held, I'll subdue nations before him, peoples. This is going to be then a big deal, isn't it? I will subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two hinged gates. What is going to happen is going to be so dramatic, so powerful, so world-shaking that the kings of the earth will have their loins loosened and they'll crap their britches. 
That's literally what this is saying. That's what the term loose the loins means. God does not mince words. And the gates shall not be shut. Now he says, this individual, whoever it is, I will go before you. I'll go out ahead of you. I'll clear the paths. I'll open the gates. And make the crooked places straight. Mankind has confused so many things and rewritten history in so many ways that it's hard to study the past and come up with the right answers. But God is going to open the crooked places and make them plain and clear before this individual, whoever it is. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron, the things that are impenetrable, the things that you cannot normally open. God says, I will open them before you so that you can see the truth of the matter. Okay? This is something that the average person, the above average person, simply could not do. It's something that God has to open the way in order for it to happen. A genius couldn't do it and sort through it all. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, and the God of Israel. So this Gentile, this unconverted person, hearkening back to the original story, is going to know that God is God because of what God does. Nebuchadnezzar even came to that point. I know your God is God, but I won't worship him. I'd rather eat grass for seven years. You know? For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect. Now who are the elect of Israel? Is it all these out here walking around in our country today? Are they elect? No, they are not. They are ungodly sinners about to be destroyed. So this is only talking to the elect of Jacob. Those who have God's word and are willing to follow it. So this is talking about who? The church. This will be done for the benefit of the elect of Jacob, the church of God. Won't be done for the benefit of the Cyrus, it'll be done for the benefit of God's people. Who does God need to be a witness that he is God? A Gentile king? A leader of this world? A pagan abominable leader in Washington or New York or London or somewhere? I think not. He needs a witness that he is God to come from his own God-fearing people. Okay? He may use a Gentile to get it going, 
just like he did originally with Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar and kings of the past who had something to do with Israel. But he's doing it for the benefit of his elect. I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. So someone is going to have had their name changed by God. But they will not know God. Now what did we just read back here? I drew them with cords of a man with bands of love, and I was to them as that take off the yoke. Well, the verse before is the one I want. But they knew not that I healed them. They gave credit in a wrong way. So here somebody says, I've surnamed you, but you don't know me. So the one that God uses to give the treasures that will make such a dramatic impact on the world is someone that doesn't know God, been renamed by God even. I know somebody that could fit this who did have his name changed. Doesn't even know what the original family name was. Interesting. I am the eternal. Here's the point. There is none else. There is no God beside me. And he is going to absolutely prove it by the things that he is doing that we're reading about right here. He's telling us. Most people don't know I'm God. But I'm declaring it, and the events that you are about to see will prove it. There's no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. So he says it twice about this individual. You have not known me. So we're looking for someone that God can use for his purposes that doesn't know him. And if you're around the one that I'm thinking of as possibly being the answer to this, you'll be around him a bit and you'll say, no, he really doesn't know God, does he? So he fits in that place. I don't know. We'll see. That they, here, see, now here's the whole deal. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, both directions, all around the world, that there is none beside me. I am the eternal and there is none else. He is going to make it known to the whole world that he is the living God. That's what he has purposed to do. Now isn't the end time witness of the two witnesses to go around the world and show those people that God is God, and the witness against their satanic way of living. So this dovetails perfectly with what God is going to do at the end, starting with chapter 40 going forward, with his own people, and he's also going to use someone who does not know him to supply what is needed to do the job, just as he did in the past. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Eternal, do all these things. I'm not going to read the rest of that now, but I wanted to review that. 
Now, we came here, did we not, because we began to recognize in the Bible and in the geography and the geology of this area and the names and so on that go with it, that this was an area that God was going to use. He had used Herbert Armstrong in the southwestern United States, Ephraim, to raise up his church of the firstborn at the end. And he showed us that he intends to do a work again in the southwest at the end that has to do with Zion, the desert, the wilderness, the mountains, right here. I believe that, and I believe you believe that, or you would not be a part of what we're doing here. You would not have come here. You would have not have kept the feast at the base of the great white throne of God in Zion if you hadn't believed that. So we've believed, haven't we? And we were small in our thinking and looking for answers. We studied these things out, and it seemed that they were true. So we acted on it. And here we are. In other words, I believe, we believed, that God was in this and it was something he was doing. Or we wouldn't have responded. To most, it's crazy and insane. I recently heard a comment somebody had made that, well, if there is gold there, just the leaders will get it. In other words, we won't. Just the leaders will benefit. Now, that doesn't make me angry. It makes me sad. It makes me sad that we are so non-understanding, so blitheringly blind, that we would have that kind of thinking still. That our cynicism and our sarcasm from what we have seen in the past and from the culture we grew up in still affects our thinking to the point that we don't trust God who is trying to draw us with bands of love and take the yoke out of our jaw and understand that he is trying to heal us. He was trying to heal Israel when he brought them across the Red Sea. He's promised he's going to do things here in the end that are going to be so great that it'll make us forget the Red Sea. It will pale it into comparison what God is about to do with his church. Now that has to be something bigger than, well, we keep the feast and the holy days, therefore the whole world hates us. Brethren, that is not big enough to make the whole world hate us. It's got to be something enormous that would create that. Let's go for a moment back to the book of Ezra. I'm not here to 
jump on anybody. I'm here to hopefully increase our understanding so that we can see a much bigger picture, so that we can understand, and maybe we can change our thinking to fit God's thinking. Not Daryl's thinking, God's thinking. Now, so far, I've been reading to you the words of Almighty God, and I'm going to continue to do that here. But Ezra says the Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, somebody who was not a part of his people. I find it very interesting that the sermonette this morning came back here and introduced a couple of thoughts that were on my mind, and I'd already determined to come back here before I ever heard the sermonette. Is God working or is God not working? If he can inspire Bill Durkee <laughs> and Daryl Henson to go to the same part of his word and begin to expound on the same morning, then just maybe his finger is in it. Just maybe. Because he's a knothead. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm a bonehead. But God is not. So let's read his words, shall we? Verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The eternal God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So this is a historical record of what Isaiah gives us as a prophetic future. This is what the man did. Now, how did they finance what was about to be done? Verse 5, Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all them whose spirit God had raised. God says in Haggai that he is going to stir up the people to come and build the temple. And the context there is so clearly in Haggai and Zechariah 1 through 6, that of the work of the two witnesses in the church that is with them, that there could be no question what it's talking about, and the time element of it. Those whom the Spirit of God had raised to go up to build the house of the Eternal, which is in Jerusalem, and all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. So the people themselves gave what all they could because they believed in what was happening. They believed King Cyrus when he said, go build Jerusalem. And they gave what they could to help the effort. So they acted in faith, giving of their goods to get a job done, didn't they? All right, that isn't all that was done, however. Let's go to chapter 3, I think I want next. And let's begin in verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings to the eternal, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So people began to worship God, but there had been some delay, and the temple was not yet, the foundation wasn't even laid. So we're looking at the time before the actual work began, okay? That's important. They gave money also to the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil to them of Zidon, to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. 
Even Haggai says, go up to the mountains and bring wood to build the temple. So it ties in clearly with this, and Haggai is so very much an end-time prophecy of today. So it wasn't just for the leaders, was it? They gave money to the masons and the carpenters, gave money to the people that were doing it and had volunteered to do it before the foundation was even laid. People began to be involved and receive monies to take care of their needs. Very interesting concept. Now let's go to chapter 6, verse 7. Artaxerxes, or Darius the king here, had made a decree, and we won't go through all of it about how it was to be built and so on, but he said in verse 7, Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Had to get the right place, and they had to build the temple of God. And he said, as a king, king's order, leave them alone and let them do this. Moreover, I make a decree what you shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given to these men, that they be not hindered. So the Jews that were going to build a temple were to be given expense money to take care of their needs while they traveled, while they worked, to build a temple of God. And that which they have need of, young bullocks and rams and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. Whatever they need for their expenses, whatever they need to worship their God, let it be given them without fail. So the king said, I will take care of the expenses, I will take care of all the needs, I will even take care of their worship portion. Chapter 7, verse 15. Well, let's go to 14. Well, it talks about free will, first of all, in verse 13. Them which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with you. You can't make people do something like this. It has to be of their own free will. God says in Haggai again, I will stir them to come and do it. For as much as you are sent of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. Inquiry had to be made about Jerusalem. Are we inquiring about Jerusalem today? To want to know where and how and everything about it? I should say so. And to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose habitation is in Jerusalem. So he was freely offering to the God of Israel. And didn't we read in Isaiah 45 that this Cyrus in the end time, again, written after Ezra and Nehemiah had been accomplished as a prophetic future, that he would say, this is for the elect of God to build the temple and, and Jerusalem. And all the silver and gold that you can find in all the provinces of Babylon is willing to turn it all over. 
with the free will offering of the people and of the priests, offering willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem, that you may buy speedily with this money, bullocks, rams, lambs, with their meat offerings, or meal offerings, and their drink offerings, and offer them upon the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. And whatsoever shall seem good to you. Take care of the worship service, the religious expenses, and whatever seems good to you. Now that is a pretty broad mandate. <laughs> whatever you think is good and right. To do with the rest of the silver and the gold, that, that do after the will of your God. That is a pretty broad permission granted, is it not? The vessels also that are given you for the service of the house of your God, those deliver you before the God of Jerusalem. This is for Jacob, my elect, God says in Isaiah 45. And he's going to do it by somebody that doesn't even know him. And Artaxerxes made this decree, the decree of Artaxerxes, you read about it in history, for God's people to do God's purpose and his will. What an incredible story. Now, we're in the end time. We do see Ephraim falling before our very eyes right in front of us. And maybe that's why I can't seem to get to that new series I wanted to start and have stayed hung up here this whole feast. This is the fifth day. But maybe it's poignant today because we see the destruction before our very eyes. And maybe that's why God wants us looking at it and seeing it. And at the same time, maybe he wants us to see what he wants done in spiritually for him. Church of the firstborn. This nation will not obey God. Most of the church will not obey God. We've seen too many scriptures that 90% of them will turn tail and run. And only a small remnant will be faithful and serve God. And they will be stirred by God to come and do the work that we're reading about. Now let's do a brief review here. And let me start by saying, I am nothing. And never have been anything. I was not an evangelist or an apostle in Worldwide Church of God. Barely hung on as a pastor of churches. And Herbert Armstrong even fired me once. Threatened to a few times and fired me once. He fired a lot of people, but I deserved it. Now, why are you listening to what I'm saying about God's Word? It's not because of me. I'm no great leader. It's because I read some things to you out of this book. And most of you first heard, the first sermons you heard that I gave, most of you, we're out of the Minor Prophets. We've come full circle back to the book of Hosea now. And you saw 
What is written in these books was not just about physical Israel, but it was a message, first of all, to the church. That resonated with you. That you could grasp. You could see it right there in the Scripture is the reason you responded. And we showed in going through these books that the church is not what it ought to be and that we needed to repent, not just those Laodiceans out there. And God, I think, stuck my nose in this area. I had a dream in which I was in Beaverdam, Arizona. Woke up, scared half to death. God said, I want you to prepare a place, and it's near here. And I looked around and couldn't find it. Didn't know where it was. Went back to Alaska even, not knowing what that meant, but it was so real, it scared me. Then later on, a couple years later, I'd gone to work for Church of the Great God. I was in Chicago for spring holy days. Had what I could only call a vision. I was waking up, and I saw these two maps of the Middle East, and of Utah. And the perception was that they were a mirror image of each other. I won't go into all the detail of that. I've told you that story before. So we began a frenzied search into the scriptures and into the geography and the names out here and various things and began to see that it indeed was a mirror image and that so many scriptures fit this area. And even the topography and the red dirt and everything fit this area. It's very similar to that which is in the Middle East. Had another dream of people walking down the mountain and I was with them. And there was Zion on one hand and Petra on the other hand. And it was, you got to make a choice here, which way are you going to go? We went down into Zion. And then it seemed that there was a safe passage between Zion and Petra into the dream. In other words, I believe that that meant it's safe to drop the idea of Petra and go to Zion. I thought perhaps it could mean that God was going to use both places. I don't really think that's the case now, but I think it meant that it was safe to go from one to the other. And then I began to read in the scripture about all the places, dozens and dozens, which talk about Zion as a place of refuge, Zion as a place of peace and protection, and so on. Couldn't find that story in there about Petra. Were the dreams from God? I believe they were because they fit the scriptures as we began to study them. Fit perfectly. So we wound up out here. I began while I was still with Church of the Great God to come out here and search for a place around this area, somewhere in the four corners, that God would give us to be able to come to and begin to gather because I felt that he was going to do a work out here. Couldn't find a place. We finally decided we'd just move over here and continue the search and pray for God to open a door. Now, John Reitenbaugh of Church of the Great God had told me one time, well, if we get a place 
and God's hand is in it, it has to be either given to us or almost given to us. That was in about 96 or 7. So I continued the quest. Now, after we'd moved out here, we couldn't find anything. It was all too expensive. We couldn't afford it. We're just, all of us, basically poor people. How are we going to do this? Then somebody saw an ad about a piece of land on cane beds, and I'd driven by here and said, boy, I hope this isn't where we, I'd hate to live there. <laughs> Ugliest place I'd ever seen. Check out the world starting with the armpit. Even down in Kingman, they call us the armpit of the county up here. They're further south. I don't know what that makes them. But <laughs> I guess I should not return in kind. <clears throat> anyway, this piece of property we're on today came up. And I've told you this story about how I was, boy, I was going to go in there and I was going to negotiate and make him give it to us and I'd set a level of interest rate I thought we should pay, and, and the amount of down payment I thought would be about right, and, and the price of the land and everything. I'd, I was going to undercut everything that he was going to propose. I went in and sat down and started talking to him, and he named interest rate way under what I was going to try to negotiate. He named price before I ever said a word that was lower than I had anticipated asking. And I thought, well, down payment's going to fix it, you know. He said, well, I, he said, I really need a substantial down so that I'm confident you won't just walk off and leave it. And I thought, well, that's going to be probably 20% at least or 25% of 300000 We're out. We couldn't have gotten that if we'd have robbed the banks. So I braced myself, and he said, how about 5000 That's not even earnest money on a piece of property this big. Not even. I didn't say a word. I just whipped out my check and started writing. It was almost given to us. How much can you afford a month? Well, I think if we could do a couple thousand. He says, okay, we'll just figure that out based on the interest rate and the price, and we'll get it down to about there. What can I say? just fell in our lap. Now that was almost given to us. Now we come to, and we've developed it, here we are. But it was also said that it would have to be given to us or almost given to us. Now we know that God says there have to be villages, not one village that will comprise Jerusalem at the end. Towns without walls, Zechariah 2. Okay? Well, we got one little village here. Where are we going to put these others? How's God going to provide? Well, a man came to us here, and he said, you know, I've been studying for, I'm paraphrasing, I'm cutting the story way short, but he said, uh, I've been studying for a long time, and he says, you know what I've come up with? He said, Utah and the Middle East are mirror images of each other. I say, huh? No, no, that's what I said. You didn't say that. I said that. I saw that. I believed that. No, he believed it too. And he came from a totally different direction than we had. 
He had had roots out in this area. He'd gone through 30 years of study, and he said, Jerusalem's right up here. You want to go see it? Well, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> but you see, what the man had come up with was basically the same picture we had, only I couldn't find Jerusalem on those two maps where there were mirror images of each other, Utah and the Middle East. Because it had been desolate for generations and it wasn't on the map. But God, I believe, has showed this man where it was. Now at some point along here, people began to have some doubts. And I don't blame them. That's the craziest thing they'd ever heard of. How could Jerusalem be in the southwestern United States? It's over there in the Middle East. Everybody knows that. Now, can we take into consideration what God says before we make our pontifical positions known? Can we review that God said Israel or that Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations? Can we review that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given land and they said, this land that you're standing on, I will give to your children at the end of days when they are as the sand of the sea and as the stars of heaven. And then look around and see where are God's people, Israel, today. Where is Ephraim today? If you cannot see that those plain statements God made that are not subject to interpretation, they're just plain, straight-out statements. The land you walk on, Abraham, is what I'm going to give your people in the end time. No prevarication, no stutter, no parable. That's it, Abraham. That if God be true, and his word be true, and his promises to Abraham be true, we today have to be walking on the original promised land that Abraham trod. There can be no other answer if you believe God in the Bible. I feel confident in that after having seen it now through so many places in God's Word. And I am going to be one surprised boy if it doesn't turn out that way. Maybe it will. I don't know for sure where I'm walking. But when I read those scriptures and then somebody comes right out of the blue and comes up with the exact same answer I had, only adding one city, basically, I have to say that has to be more than coincidence. And the fact that we would be brought to Cane Beds, Arizona, and he would come to the exact same place, and we're probably the only two groups of peoples on earth who believe the same things, how mathematically possible is that? And then, that he would have 
and have purchased, without even knowing what was there, the places where those things are. Jerusalem. He already owned part of the ground that it's on before he knew it was there. He already owned the land where the treasures of Solomon and Solomon's mines and a lot of other things that I'm not going to say in public are before he ever knew the story. Did God go ahead of him and break the bars of iron and brass and make the crooked straight? Because thousands of people have looked for what we have found and not found it. I say we, he discovered the story. He bought the land before he knew the story even fit it. Is that coincidence? And not only that, he had quite a bit of land, thousands of acres. And he has been pleading with me, get people to come and live on my land. You don't have to buy it. Just come use it. How often has someone told you that in your life? How often have you heard of anybody that said that to people in your life? None. Never. Doesn't happen. Well, it has. It'll have to be either given to you or nearly given to you, said us at the time. We had a piece to get us started that was nearly given to us. And now we have had thousands of acres offered to us for nothing, given to us. Is that coincidental? Now, if I were a slave in Egypt, and my father were a slave, and my grandfather were a slave, and my great-grandfather were a slave, and we were making bricks, and someone came along and said, I'm going to lead you out of here, and next day we didn't even have straw to make bricks with. But you better make as many as you were making. Yeah, right. I could be a modern American. Sure you will. They believed it. They believed it was going to happen. They acted on it. Did they know the answers? Did they see what was about to happen? No. Did they know they'd go to the Red Sea and get stopped? Did they know there would be a pillar of cloud and fire? Did they know the sea would part and they could walk through on dry land? Did they know the sea would cover the Egyptians and drown them all? No. Did they know God would take care of them and feed them and give them water? No. And the minute they got a little bit thirsty, they said, this must have all been coincidence. I think I'll go back to Egypt. They could not walk forward in faith, not knowing all the answers. They were doubting Thomases, three and a half million of them. Well, I believe it if I see the scars. I believe it if I see this. They couldn't walk in faith. 
Well, even if there is gold there, it'll just be for the leaders. You know what? Bottom line is, brethren, we are no different than our people who came out of Egypt. You know what the bottom line is? They would not believe God. They did not believe, as we're reading right here, that I was taking them by their arms and that I healed them. They looked at Moses and said, he's just a man. They couldn't see God in the picture. Now we are at a place right now in the end time with our nation coming apart before our very eyes, it has to be time for God to begin to do some things that he is going to do. And we believed enough to come here, but, you know, Daryl doesn't always do things right. We get an air of negativity. You know what, brethren? This doesn't have a thing to do with me. It doesn't have a thing to do with me. It has everything to do with God. God just began to show you and me what he wanted done. And we have done nothing that could not have done, been done in that sense far from the eyes of anyone else that couldn't have been done by men. Anybody could go out and start a little community somewhere. Now even what we did here, if you're on the inside, you know that it was a miracle that this land opened up. Now, are we going to keep our cynicism and sarcasm and our negative attitudes? Or are we going to walk in faith? Well, it'll just be for the leadership. Now, I'm not here to crow about me. But I want to explain something to you. I saw, as I grew up, misuse and abuse of money and power and Worldwide Church of God. I saw it when I was in the ministry. I saw it all my life. Now, when we started here, I determined that we would try to change that. We did not extract your excess second tithe from you. We told you, keep your third tithe, Save it and use it for the Levite, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger that is in our gates. Not something we took away from you and went and had fine motels and bought jet airplanes with, <laughs> like there was that much, but referring to the past. You kept it in your house so that you might learn wisdom and when to distribute it to those whom the Bible defines as legal recipients of it. We provided the church a lot of the money for the food that was eaten at the feast. Marla and I bought it out of our own funds in many cases. And she did a lot of the cooking when she was able to. Not that a lot of other people didn't help. I'm not saying that. They did. So I'm not trying to take credit for anything. I'm trying to tell you we were trying to change an attitude and an approach that I feel was wrong and worldwide and was part of the reason he blew it apart. Misuse and abuse 
and in that sense thievery of that which God had given through his people. We have put tens of thousands of dollars of our own money that was not generated at all through the church into this project. Far more than Andy Benedetto ever did. Far more. I've not told you that before. All this grain in the bins out here came from my own personal pocket. It didn't come from church funds. There is no way on earth that my wife and I can eat all the grain that is in those bins or our chickens or our turkeys can eat it all in the next thousand years. And I doubt I'll live that long on this earth. It was because I believe that God is here doing something. And I put my money where my mouth is. That was money that was generated in Alaska that had nothing to do with Worldwide Church of God or this Church of God. I have recently put more than a million dollars, easily, worth of gemstones that came from Alaska as well, from the trade of properties, so that money might be borrowed to help with this project. I believe in it. And the monies that are coming in and your offerings and your tithes are not being spent primarily on me. We have spent tens of thousands of dollars running back and forth to where I believe Jerusalem is and buying equipment and things to mine with and various things to make the project go better. I'm not in this for money. I could care less. We're here to do what we think God wants done. And when we started reading Ezra a while ago in chapter 1, it was the people gave willingly what they had. Before the temple was laid, the foundation of the temple was laid, remember? So even before this thing gets off the ground, you have been giving, I have been giving, because we believe God's hand is in it. And when we see God's hand more and more in it, we will get involved. And there will come a point where it's bigger than we can handle. And God will show his treasures, the hidden treasures of darkness and of the secret places, as he says in Isaiah 45. And he will finance it. And the Cyrus he sends will finance it. And money will be given to the workmen so that their expenses are covered. Can we wake up to reality, brethren? Right now, of those who live on this property, today, 25% of you have your living provided by the man that I think is Cyrus. In the last 30 to 45 days, or, well, actually going back three or four months, but culminating mostly in the last 30 to 45 days, enough people have been hired from him that by the time you count their wives and children and their families, 
Fully 25% of us are now supported by the one who is providing our living expenses. Even before the project really gets off the ground and the foundation of the temple is laid. Now, does that parallel what we read in Scripture or not? Now, you can argue that you don't like the way I do things. You can argue any negative argument you want to come up. You can be a doubting Thomas, all you want to be. And you can think that I'm not qualified to do this job, and I'm not. I pray to God every day that he give me the mercy and compassion and forgiveness and the direction and the guidance to do things the way he wants them done because if I do them my way, they won't come out right. I see my problems, my weaknesses, my sins, and I pray God will use me to do what he wants done for you and for him in spite of myself. I struggle every day. I'm not righteous by nature. I struggle with myself every day because I am as human as anybody that ever walked the earth and maybe more than some. I could have been listed at one point as a chief among sinners. That's not bragging about how bad I've been. That's just a fact. You see... It's not me you're negative about. It's not that man that we're talking about that you're negative about. Your problem is, if you're cynical and negative, you don't trust God. It's that simple. And by that I'm not inferring that I'm a Moses or a Joshua or a, a Paul or a Peter or a James or a John. Maybe a John in the vernacular, but not an Apostle John. See, God is in control. God can strike me down at any moment. And may! That's his option. I hope he doesn't. I pray he doesn't. I pray I can lead you in the directions that are good and that God will lead me to do so. And that if he has indeed set us here to do a job as it appears he has and as things fit more and more day by day and month by month, the story we read here, maybe he'll see it through. But if I start going off the wrong direction, God is in charge. It's not your job to criticize where we're going or to be down in the mouth or to murmur and bitch and complain about where you think I'm going or my capacity to do it. If you don't think God can lead me to where he wants me to go and you to go. 
or block me out if I go the wrong way, then you need to go somewhere else. Is that clear? We do not have time for negativity. We do not have time for second-guessing. The Bible says God is going to do a work in the end time. He lays the story out for us. Now, do we believe him or not? If he has shown us information that others have not yet come across, are we to act on it or not? Are we to move forward in faith not even seeing all the answers or not? Abraham went looking for a city and he did not know where he was going. You know what city he was looking for that he couldn't find and didn't know about? Jerusalem was the city he was seeking and didn't know where it was. We came out here seeking God's will and way and direction, and we had some foreknowledge of Zion. We didn't even know we were looking for Jerusalem. We were looking for God's hand. And then maybe God has shown us Jerusalem. And we say, oh, that can't be Jerusalem. Oh, we of little faith. Abraham walked forward not knowing for sure where he was going. Are you willing to do that? Are you going to bitch and complain and be negative and hold everybody back and bleed your bad attitude on them over and over and snip and snipe and, well, they didn't do this right and they didn't do that right and maybe that's not right after all and maybe God's leading us astray. It's what he did to Juan Lacey. He was leading us in the right way, but then he started leading us wrong. Well, I'm so afraid Bill's going to lead us wrong. We're going to die out here in the desert. Grow up! God can remove me in an instant. And if he removed Juan Lacey, he can remove me just as fast. Raymond McNair just died, one of the last evangelists. God apparently wasn't leading him to see what he is doing and wasn't going to use him to do it. He's gone. That's not a criticism of Raymond McNair, please. But people can die. I'm not immune. If I start leading you wrong, I believe God will remove me. And you know what else I, about that? I have asked him to many times. Please cause me to lead this people in the paths that they should go so that we might know a path for us and our little ones, as it says in Ezra. And I said, Father, if you can't keep me on the path and I get off the path, either get me on it or get rid of me. And I meant it.
He's quite capable of getting me and you on the path. Now Moses wandered around for a long time because they wouldn't believe. They could have gone straight from the Red Sea to the Promised Land, right up here. But they wandered about for 40 years. You want to do that? All right, then quit your belly aching. We don't have time for negativity. We don't have time for doubting Thomases. We don't have time to say, well, we better copper our bets. Daryl might lead us off the path. It's time to walk by faith. God can do whatever he wants to do. If I go the wrong way, he can send somebody else to guide you. If I'm wrong about some things, he can start this up somewhere else, and you can go there. And maybe I will too. I'm not saying we're the big it. I'm saying everything is falling in place according to the way these scriptures read so far. And if it's been that way so far, <coughs> what's wrong with taking another step into an unknown area and finding out if that's where we're supposed to go? God may strike me dead. Maybe we ought to have 30 seconds here just to wait. I'm not asking him to. I'm not saying he's going to. But he's quite capable of taking people out that don't do what they're supposed to. Read the Bible! He took a lot of people out over the years. He about nearly took David out. And sometimes when we get taken it out, it wasn't because we were bad, necessarily. What about the apostles? They were good guys. They got hung upside down and all kinds of things happened to them. Isaiah himself saw it in half. Not in half, but asunder, stem to stern. Dull saw. When Christ returns, will he find faith on earth? If you're just going to doubt and whine and complain, go away, please, so the rest of us can move forward. If we start going the wrong way, God will correct us. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Daryl is not the question. It is also true what God said to Samuel. They don't doubt you, Samuel. They doubt me. And I'm no Samuel. Doubting me is easy. It comes natural. Whether I'll be in the kingdom of God is still in doubt. I'm easy to doubt. Apparently God is easy to doubt too. That's the sad part. That's the sad part. God said, if he began a work in you, he would finish it until the day of Emmanuel the King. 
I think that's from Philippians. Now, as he started a good work in you, he can complete it. If you don't go willingly, he'll try to draw you with bands of a man and love. If you still won't go willing, he's going to kick your butt. He'll try you, he'll test you, he'll do everything he can until he knows that you and I will go his way. He is a God who can accomplish his purposes in you and in me and in the rest of the church, wherever it may be. And those faithful ones he has scattered through all the splintered churches of God today, he will draw them and stir them to come work in the temple. I've said for years that I felt our job was a prep crew to get things ready for those people to come. We're the janitors, the carpenters, the masons to get things ready. And you must have believed that or I don't know why you're here. If you're only here even just to save your behind, you have to believe something about what we're doing is correct or this wouldn't be the place you'd come to get it saved. Is that a no-brainer or what? Do I sound angry? I'm not. I'm trying to get us to look at reality. Either God is in what we're doing here or he's not. And if he is in what we're doing here, he can certainly keep me on the right path. And if I, by force of human nature and self, wander off the path or start to get deceived, God can straighten me out or strike me dead. He is quite capable of that. So what are you so worried about? I'm tired of negativity. I'm absolutely fed up to here with it. And so is God. Go back in this series and listen to those tapes about Joseph and how he could turn lemons into lemonade and how he could make things work and how positive his approach, approach was and realize we're his son Ephraim. God is not interested in your arguments or you're murmuring and you're griping. Not interested at all. Brethren, we cannot tolerate that kind of thinking. We cannot allow our ears to hear that kind of thinking. When are we going to man up? And when people get negative, and they say, oh, that can't be. When are we going to man up? When are we going to faith up? And say, I don't want to hear that. You afraid you're going to hurt somebody's feelings? You afraid you're going to offend them by doing what you know needs to be done? Was Daniel afraid of offending Nebuchadnezzar when he wouldn't bow down to his idols? Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego afraid they would offend Nebuchadnezzar? 
But he said, I'm going to do what God says. I will not bow down. I will not disbelieve. I will walk forward in faith. Throw me in the lion's den. Throw me into the burning, fiery furnace. If so be it, God wants me to die, I'll die there. He wants me to live, I'll live. I don't belong to me, I belong to God. I believe him, they said. I will do what he says. They were positive. They were faithful. They would listen to nothing else. You know how strife ceases? If you get rid of the tailbearer, the strife ceases. If you listen to negativity and lack of faith in God and what God may or may not be doing, you are offending the little ones, you're destroying the faith of the little ones, and you would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the deep blue sea. Because you will answer to God for destroying the budding, just starting faith of the little ones who are willing to take those little steps to try to walk in faith and obey what they read in this book. You destroy their faith, you're not going to want to face this God that he says to prepare to meet. You'd better be careful what you let come out your lips. And you'd be better, better be careful what you allow come into your ears. Find some spiritual guts. And those who would be negative and murmur and gripe and complain and tell them you don't want to hear it anymore. Well, I just listened to him. Hear no evil. See no evil. If you're not going to hear it, you're going to have to shut it up, aren't you? Telling me either let's change the subject, go away. Or I'm going away. I'm not going to listen to this. <clears throat> when will we do what God says? How are we any different if we go this route than ancient Israel was? <clears throat> they murmured and carped and griped and complained and bitched all the way out of there. And the ones they were complaining and murmuring to tolerated it. And it didn't get stopped and their carcasses fell in the wilderness. I don't want your carcasses to fall in the spiritual wilderness and the tribulation at the end of this age. And I don't want mine to fall there either. We're in the promised land, brethren. Are we going to be taken into captivity out of it? Or will we remain in safety in it where God has said? You may not believe everything yet. And that's okay. 
But don't stand in the way. Don't murmur and carp and gripe. If you don't like it, get out. Or if you don't like it, keep your mind open and wait and see what God is doing if he is in it. Lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way. Yes, that's enough.